Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Meshuggah, Periphery, A Day to Remember, and Bring Me the Horizon. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder. Pro quality, multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. I'm A.L. Levy. And with me, I have someone who uh, I've looked up to for a really, really long time, though we only crossed paths for a very short time, I think in 2003, when I went to the Atlanta Institute of Music for like two months. Um I went there, interestingly enough, I went there after having gone to Berkeley and decided that I hated it and I wanted to come home and start a death metal band. And I was like, I want to continue my education. I went there for two months. I thought it was cool. And then my studio picked up and I left. But Tom always stood out to me as just uh, one of those people that is doing everything right and you should uh, you should watch. And uh, if you don't know who he is, he's a platinum album receiving drummer, drum instructor, voice actor, and entrepreneur. He's played for bands like TLC, Monica Pink, Stevie Nicks. Uh, his voice acting work can be had on commercials and narrations for companies like Acura, Honda, Schlage Locks, St. Jude's Children Research Hospital, Yamaha Drums, Vic Firth Drumsticks, the Cleveland Indians, the Cleveland Browns, and many more. He was voted in and served the maximum duration of four years as board governor for the Atlanta chapter of the Recording Academy. That's the Grammys, if you don't know that. And uh, as a result, has performed with several industry giants, such as Michael Bolton, Kelly Price, Bo Diddley, and a bunch more. And uh, I must say James Brown, too. Of course, that guy. Uh, no one's ever heard of him. And uh, to date, uh, Tom's played on records that collectively sold over 15 million records. And uh, yeah, welcome. Thank you. Wow, that what a... Tremendous introduction. That was that was almost like a, a, a inside the actor studio James Lipton introduction. Man, thank you for that. I I feel pretty special. <laughs> thank well, you. It's good I to mean, do you do you ever think about the amount of stuff you've done? Or I mean, you you seem that you're like you're just living your life, and I've kind of followed you online, so I know that you're always doing something new and challenging yourself. Like now I've seen that you've got this fitness thing going on, but do you ever sit back and take note of all the stuff you've done or is it not important anymore? Cause you're always on to the next thing. That's a great question. Um, I think sometimes if I'm feeling down and out or, you know, you go through those moments where you're kind of feeling sorry for yourself, things aren't going re really well or something, you know, you do, you kind of reflect mm -hmm. back and you go, well, wait a minute, I've done this and I've done that. And, you know, you try to pep yourself up, you know, I'm not going to lie, man. I have those moments where, you know, days that just don't go the way you want them to go. And so, yeah, I think especially in those times, I, I kind of go back and say, okay, well, all right, look, you survived this and you survived that and you, you know, found a way to get there, you know, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you know, I woke up this morning and I can still see, I can still hear all of my limbs work. I, I really just don't have any excuse to, to not try to move forward or try to progress to whatever it is I'm, I, I'm onto. 
Um, but yeah, sorry. The long answer to your question is, yeah, sometimes I do um, stroll through, you know, down memory lane and try to pick myself back up. But usually that's only on on, on the, the, the so-called bad days, you know. Um, and how long does that usually take? Just out of curiosity. The reason I'm asking is mm-hmm. you bring up a really good point that like you use it to help overcome when, uh, I guess, when you're getting in your own way or something or feeling down. And we've got a yeah. lot of people who subscribe to our service who are just starting to mix now. And, you know, when they put up their mixes compared to the pros, it makes them want to quit sometimes. And it's, you know, it's disheartening when you think you've come a long way and then you yeah. AB against something that's top level and you're like, oh man, I suck. And uh, we're telling them, I always tell people that all the best people feel that way too. Yes. That's that uh, that's a normal right. thing. And the difference is that they know how to deal with it. Yes. I, I continually beat myself up, you know, by observing the people who are doing better than me. But that's, that's kind of always been, uh, I don't want to call it a trick or a secret because it's really neither of those things. I think it's, for me, it's just the way it always worked. Um, I don't remember you know, learning to talk by imitating my parents and learning to walk by, you know, again, observing those who were already Mm -hmm. doing it. But I know that, I know that happened. And it started to become a conscious effort sometime, I think, in high school. And, And that's exactly what happened. You see somebody that's doing something so profoundly better than me or you, you see somebody doing something so profoundly better than you. And the first reaction is, oh, I suck. I'm the worst. I'll never get there. You know, and, and yeah, we all go through that. But my trick was always to just copy them. I mean, you're not ever really going to become that person anyway. Um, so I do subscribe. And I know sometimes this backfires on me. People, you know, will come back and say, oh, you're not being true to yourself. And don't, don't, that's the wrongest thing you could do. I, I don't really agree with that. I think that if you can find somebody who's already doing something really, really well, certainly the way you want to be doing it, man, go for it. Um, no matter how close you get, you're still going to be you. I, you know, people may start, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Weckl was and is still a profound influence on, on me and my playing. And when I first started learning how to play like him, if I could even say that, uh, people recognized. They were like, oh, you're playing that lick that we all know he played. Great, great, thanks, another mm-hmm. Weckle guy. You know. um, but what, <laughs> what starts to happen is I would, in, I would play an idea that I learned from him, but I would put it in a pop song like maybe on the TLC tour or something, I might have taken an idea that I know I got from him, but stick it over here in this genre where he doesn't play. That's not mm-hmm. his thing. And so just little things like that would begin to bubble up. And over the years, um, again, having sourced a lot of different drummers and working that stuff into my playing because I was really impressed with it and wanted to be able to do it, uh, people started actually thinking that that was my style <laughs> when... It probably really wasn't. It was probably really just, again, a a cobbled together Frankenstein of drummers that I'm embodying. In other words, I'm not really trying to take any credit for it, but other people would see it as, oh, that's that's your style. Okay, cool. You know, Uh, but that's that's what happens, I think, is that, you know, you you can imitate the people who who are your heroes. But at the at, at the end, 
that's not what people are going to see. They're going to see that you come through. And that has happened to me as a drummer. It happened to me as a videographer. I had video heroes and animation heroes, certainly as a voice actor. Um, I don't know if people can hear my influences. All of the guys that I looked up to have all died, sadly. Um, so the people who remember those guys, like Don LaFontaine or Brian James, they may recognize some of that influence, but nobody ever says it to me. They all just say, oh, we, I like the way that you sound. Why don't you do this for us? Why don't you read the script for us? And that's how it works. You know, Man, just, that's actually pretty profound because uh, one thing that I learned a long time ago, and it served me very, very well, is to model successful people. Um, it, you know, whether it was through playing guitar and if you want to get better vibrato, pull up a video with Zach Wilde and look at how he holds the guitar and the angle it's at, all that stuff. Look at exactly how he does it and then try to do it. And, um, and don't worry, no matter what, you're not going to sound like Zach Wilde because only Zach Wilde sounds like Zach Wilde. And uh, I, I think that your style in anything you do is a combination of all your influences put together, plus you. Uh, so there's no way that you could ever do, you could ever be someone else. So I also tell our students that um, don't worry about it. Like the better you get, the more that your personality is going to come through. And it really, really, that the pathway to freedom is through the techniques, really. Yeah, I agree. That, that's what gives you the freedom to do this stuff. And then there's then there's the there's the momentum that you create and encourage as you learn these things that you have always wanted to learn or you become able to perform uh, a particular idea, a lick, anything that you've always wanted to do. There's joy in that, even if you haven't found a place to put it in your own material yet. Just the fact that you've acquired one more skill, that kind of momentum, mm -hmm. I think, is powerful in the positive movement of your career or, or, or your quest. Um, so I, I don't want to discount that either. Again, one more reason. I, I hate to sound like I'm defending this idea, but I have had to do that so many times. People are like, no, you should never copy anybody. Here's yet one more reason I think it's okay is that each time you each time you learn something, you're just happier. You you can't. It's one more reason you can't wait to get mm -hmm. behind the drums or to strap on the guitar, and because you, you can now do this thing that you couldn't do yesterday, you know. And it really is like that, isn't it? You know, you you work, you work, you work, struggle, 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 and then one day there it is. You can just you can do it, and there's there's such power in that. Um, and so that the next time you sit behind your instrument, you're just that much more enthused, and and I think it's a a compounding effect that overall just. It just helps. It may it helps you strive for you know higher and higher heights. You know that's that's how I feel. Absolutely. About it. Yeah. I, I've experienced that same exact thing too. Like I know when I was doing the band thing for all those years and writing all that music. Uh, you know, obviously writer's block would happen, mm -hmm. like it happens to anybody. And the way that I always got over it was by getting a guitar lesson with somebody new. And just having them teach me something uh, that they wanted to teach me. Um, regardless of if it was in a genre I hated or liked or whatever, it didn't matter. Just take on something new and actually force your brain to absorb it. And it's not like I would suddenly become a great jazz player. I always sucked at it. And I don't even really like it. But 
but you take one lesson with a guy like that, you absorb it, and then you go back to doing your thing, you, you're going to have a new perspective and more energy or, and, you know, you have to regenerate the creativity. So I've seen that work many, many times. And on the topic of momentum, how do you maintain yours? It doesn't seem like you ever stop. Oh gosh. Um, you know, I should, let me address that for a second. I do stop more than I, more than I should. And that's kind of my fault for not sharing those, those down days, what we talked about in the very beginning of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guilty of, of sometimes only showing my best foot. You know what I mean? Um, I should probably post more on social of my failures. I mean, cause they're all over the place, but you know, ah, I, I hate to admit that, but I'm guilty. Um, so there are a lot of days where I have zero momentum. There are a lot of days where I sit behind the drums and it just doesn't feel right. Like nothing I play works. Um, there are times when I get behind the the mic and I'm reading a script very similar to something I would read every week. And all of a sudden I'm stumbling mm-hmm. over every single word and I just can't, you know, some days are just like that. So I think my answer to that question is I'm going to maybe switch it up a little bit and say, try to answer, how do I maintain a momentum when, when it, when there is none? Right. Um, yes. So how do I maintain? So, so my way of that is I will take the necessary break if I have to. And depending on the, ah, what's the word? Uh, the strength of the lack of momentum to depend. That's not the way to say that. Depending on how. The sev- inertia. Yeah. Well, depending on how, yeah. depending how strong the feeling of failure is, how about that? Um, okay. I might just take a coffee break. Maybe it's just, you know what? I want to taste a coffee and it's not really, I don't really need it. I just want it. And I want to get away from the microphone or I want to put the sticks down for five minutes, take a coffee. You know, maybe sometimes that's all it takes. If it's a really strong feeling of failure, I need a complete reboot. And for me, that's a, a good night's sleep. So, you know, I'll just, set that day down and at the end of the night, take, you know, a Tylenol PM or something to make sure that I stay asleep, get up the next day. And that (laughs) for me has always worked. Somehow uh, a good night's sleep has always been just enough to reset my inner momentum clock, um, no matter how bad the previous day was. Now, I'm blessed to not have any really, really bad days. You know what I mean? Like some people wake up and they're fighting cancer. Some people wake up and they're these poor kids, you know, the parents of the kids down in Florida. Every day they wake Mm -hmm. up and every Valentine's Day from now on, they're going to be reminded of this. I don't have any days like that. So, again, I... It's easy for me to get over these humps, um, but that's that's how I keep my moment, my momentum going when there is none uh, to to be felt. On days that feel great, I don't know, man. It's just a it's just a drug. You you you're, you're excited. You're about you're enthused about everything, and nothing seems to go wrong. Everything you play f- sounds great. Everything I say on the microphone works. You know, that's easy. Um, so I think again to recap, I think um, the answer to that question for me would be. I do whatever I have to do to get past the feeling of loss that day. And sometimes that means not doing anything. Sometimes that means just sucking it up and letting Mm -hmm. the rest of the day go. Start again tomorrow. And, you know, it's interesting that you brought up, you know, cancer or 
victims of a horrible atrocity. Um, yeah. Do you, does it help you to put things in perspective like that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have three amazing little boys and an awesome wife who gave me those, uh, nine years old, three years old, and one that just turned one. So, uh, you know, the highlight of my day now what used to be drums or voiceover or whatever I was doing. Now it's these three boys and it's really hard to, you know, make sure that they all feel loved and that I'm not favoring one over the other. Cause I don't, but you know, they start to feel like, Oh, you're not paying attention to me, daddy. You know, it's, it's cute, but I got to watch out for that. Uh, that's what drives me every day to want to be better uh, for them. And I'm raising little men and I want them to, to be able to, function in society once I'm gone. And so, yeah, when I read about some other parent who lost their kid, it, I can't imagine. I really just can't imagine what that's like. And so that's enough to sometimes to shake off any negative vibe I might be having at that moment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like by comparison, what do I have to complain about? Nothing, nothing. Shut up. Get on with it. You got it made, bro. I'm talking to myself, you know, look in the mm-hmm. mirror, shut up, whatever you're feeling, deal with it. Cause it's nothing compared to what some people are going through. And, um, I try to remember, I try to remind myself of that when dealing with other people, you never know what other people are going through. You know, you're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off. And the first thing you feel like doing is honking the horn, giving them the one fingered salute. No, I found a way around that. So what I tell myself is, ah, that person just got, I just make up a story. That person just got some horrible news and they are racing home to make sure everything's okay. That's what I would do. And Mm -hmm. all that's all it takes to suddenly now feel bad for that person. It's the exact opposite of being mad at them, which is what a lot of times happens is, you know, somebody does something. You might be right, too. (laughs) You might be right. Yeah. And even if you're not, I don't I don't mind making up these little stories if it changes my heart, you know. So I think I've wandered away from the point, uh, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's keeping things in perspective. I think that's kind of where we were. Um, yeah, I, I don't have anything to complain about, and sometimes I feel kind of guilty about that. So I really try to maximize my effort. I feel like yeah, it's a, I understand. Did, it's a did gift. you have to do that when you were learning how to play drums? No, I had no idea when I was younger about how to handle my emotions at all. In fact, you might, one could argue that I still don't know how to handle my emotions. You can ask my wife. She'll probably, you know, big thumbs up on (laughs) me not handling things well. Um, When I was a kid, I had no idea. If you ask my mom, she will regale you with all manner of stories of me hurling sticks across the room when I couldn't play something. And sometimes they'd actually stick in the wall. I mean, I was doing damage to the house because I was so <laughs> upset that I couldn't do something that my teacher wanted me to be able to do by the end of that week. And But that I see that now as just extreme passion. Um, I'm sure they might even label that as some kind of OCD or something, which I... I'm on the fence about. I don't know if I want to believe in that stuff, um, probably because I might fit into the category. But I really do think that things like obsessive compulsive, I, I think that really is just a, an extreme amount of focus, which I feel like I'm actually good at. So, of course, I kind of don't want to be diagnosed as such, <clears throat> but I get it all the time, man. Here, you're OCD. Okay. I, I have a theory that 
to be a great drummer, you need to have a little bit of OCD. Um, Don't you? Yeah. And this is just from observing, just from working with lots of great drummers over the years, uh, either in my band or recording them or whatever, come across a lot of them and they all kind of share that. And I just think that it's, you have to, you know, it's kind of like if you're a drill sergeant, it's probably hard to turn that off when you go home. If you're a drummer, it's probably hard to turn that part of your brain that makes that work, how to turn that off when you're not drumming. So there definitely seems I to think be. It, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I just think it's uh, it's part of the it's part of the gig. I think you're right. And what I was going to say is that I've observed in my own demeanor uh, various levels of that. Um, I bet you can relate to this um, in recording. Right after I finish a take, and I'm hyper aware of everything, because you're really trying to nail something, let's say, and it's difficult, and the time is a little bit away from where's, what's comfortable for you, whatever. So you're really having to put forth a lot of effort, and you're hyper aware of everything. The first listen back, um, back in, in the console room, a lot of times I won't be happy with it, just because. And then we go yeah. eat... And we come back and it sounds great. The same take. And I'm convinced that my original response was colored by this, a, a little bit too much of that focus or OCD or mm-hmm. whatever that is. And, you know, some, it doesn't always happen. But when it does, I'm always amazed. Like, what changed? Well, the track didn't. I did. So, yes. that, so then the quest is, how can I live there more? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this sort of non-judgmental, you know, or what, 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 what was wrong with my perception over here where I didn't like it? And why now is, is it okay? You know, these are all questions that I will have a hard time going to sleep because I'm trying to come up with the answer, you know, when I should just be happy that the take worked. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, I think probably play, you know, create mode is different than consume mode, right? So maybe that's in it. order to... I th- yeah, in order to take something in, I think, and really like enjoy it for what it is, you got to be in a more passive state. I think, um, you know, as a music listener or a movie watcher, or whatever, you got to be in a more passive state. If you're creating the take, that you're activated. Yeah, I like that. I, you know, what I think you're right. I think you're exactly right about that. I, I, I would. I don't know that I would have ever come to that conclusion, but I'm glad we had this conversation because literally, I. I will rack my brain. Why? Why? Why does this sound different? You know, there it is right there. Maybe that's, it's just that simple. You're, yeah, you're not in creation mode. You're, you're not in judgment. You're not in the judgment zone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which exactly. Which is what we are, you know. Whew, but I mean, that level of focus there. is crucial when you're actually doing the thing. Yes. Yeah. I, maybe that's it. Maybe we're actually enhancing this OCD. We're, we're, we're practicing it. We're rehearsing it. We're getting really good at it. This thing that they've termed bad and drug worthy. Maybe we're actually encouraging that as musicians. You know, I never thought about that either, but it could be that we've developed that and man, I'm happy. I'm sorry. I, I'm not upset by that at all. I'm not upset by the fact that I can get so zoned in that Someone walking in the room will scare me. Has that ever happened to you? You'll be so intense and somebody just, they didn't say anything, just walk in and it's scary, but that's just how involved you were. I'm sorry. I I like that. I I appreciate being there, you know? 
Well, yeah, the the results speak for themselves. I think I think the time that it becomes negative is if you have it's like a high powered rep weapon, right? You got to point it the right direction. Yeah. Um, it's like a high powered laser beam or something. If you're worried about the pattern of cracks in the sidewalk when you walk, and you can't walk across the street, or you have to cross the street because you can't deal with a certain pattern of cracks, maybe that's a problem. If you're using it to become the best drummer or whatever it is you do, the best at whatever you do, then it's a good thing. So I think it's a, it's a matter of where that, where that laser beam is focused. Yeah. And so I have definitely seen it be a really negative thing too. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, how uh, feeling down can become a really negative thing, or it can be a time to remind yourself of how much you've done or to take perspective and to re-energize yourself. Yeah. So yeah, can be either or, I think. That's right. You got it. So switching gears, I'm wondering what got you into playing drums in the first place? So uh, when I was about five or six years old, um, my parents lined the hallways with black light posters and black lights and you know, I, I was born in 68. I don't know if anybody can see this shirt. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my life begins nice. at 50, 1968. Uh, so <clears throat> what is it? 1973, 74. So a lot of the, a lot of stuff like, you know, the psychedelic rock, like iron, uh, let's see, iron butterfly, um, and other bands like that, um, were being played on our record player all the time. And one particular song by Iron Butterfly called Inagata De Vida has a really long drum solo in it. It's simple and musical, and it's certainly not full of chops by any stretch, but it was something that as a six-year-old, I could kind of pitter-patter on pillows with, you know, wooden spoons from the kitchen. And that was the beginning. That song in that year was the beginning of my interest in drums, and I never became disinterested. It was always there, and it just grew. And so by the time school band became a thing, uh, I was in the fourth grade. And because all all the fourth graders wanted to play drums, not everybody could play drums. That, coupled with the fact that my dad didn't want to spend as much money on a, on a drum as he could spend on something like a clarinet. So I played clarinet for two years, um, fourth and fifth grade. And then finally in the sixth grade, because I had stuck it out, I was, I did my, I paid my, I did my time. Um, nothing against clarinet, by the way. I just, I did it because I really wanted to play drums and I, I thought I had to go through down that path. Sixth grade, all of a sudden I had earned my, my way in and, and they bought us or they rented a snare drum and that was the beginning, man. And Ah, uh, all of a sudden it just, everything just opened up. I was a really good student in school until I started playing drums. <laughs> that's probably another, that's probably how, another way you know you're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing is it really takes effort from other parts of your life. In that case, that wasn't the best thing in the world, but my parents knew, wow, okay, yeah, this is what this kid wants to do. And nothing he has done before has ever consumed him as much as this is consuming him. And so, mm-hmm. uh, man, that it was on at that point. A couple years later, they got me for Christmas, like some used drum set. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, you know, and it was not even that great, but to me, it was, it was everything. And 
they didn't even know how to set it up, which is funny because I kept that non-setup for years because that's just the first thing I saw. And it wasn't until a band director in high school said, you know, that's not how that's supposed to be set up. That's not where that goes. And that's really, cause that's how I've been doing this all this time. <laughs> and, you know, snare drum all in the wrong place and everything. But, uh, you know, it just became a snowball rolling downhill. I, I, couldn't get enough. I was listening to everything. Anybody, anybody that came to me with, Hey, you need to check out this drummer. You need to listen to this band. You need to learn that song. I did. I, I, I checked it all out and I tried to assimilate as much of it as I could into my playing. And then of course, along the way you find who, who you are or who you want to be. And I think it was probably in the ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade. I discovered Neil Peart from Rush and that was it. I had to have that kit. And of course I didn't, but by the time I was a senior in high school, I had acquired everything. 8, 10, 12, 4, it was, no, 6, 8, 10, 12, 12, 13, 15, 18, 20. Holy uh, shit. Two timbales, tuned cowbells, double kick, 24s, um, and the requisite number of cymbals. And I even had a glockenspiel and a set of chimes. I mean, I literally had, like, acquired his whole kit at some point and had bothered to learn um, the... YYZ solo from Exit Stage Left. It took all four years or five years of high school to finally get to be able to do that. And there is a YouTube video of it somewhere. I'll send it to you. Um, it's embar- yeah, please it's, do. It's embarrassing because, like, I'm 18 years old. I got I had a perm in my hair. I wasn't wearing a shirt. Like, you know, goof. But it's, you know, some guy just happened to have a camcorder back then and videoed our little band. And so I've it's it's it's... It's down in history, man. It can, it can be found and and used um, to get me to pay large amounts of money to not be shown. <laughs> we all have videos like that, <laughs> right? I can totally, I totally believe that story about a ninth grader having that drum set. Um, so I think it's interesting. When I went to the school to aim, you know, okay. So I know I said earlier that I don't like jazz, but I always liked hearing it when you played it because the way you play, uh, I don't know, you play like a rock guy and like you play hard. And the thing I, the thing that I don't like about watching jazz or that puts me to sleep is just how light some of those guys are. But like, I always, I always thought it was awesome when I heard you play because they had that energy I like in music Mm -hmm. and now hearing what you grew up on, it all just makes sense. Yeah, I was I was definitely a rock and roller first, you know, and and there were times when I was heavily involved in either Randy Hexter's project, who we love, we mm-hmm. know and love, or Adam Nitti. Yeah, he's, uh, these are amazing mm-hmm. guys, right? And just yes. funny as can be. Uh, he could have been a stand-up comic, I swear. That <laughs> dude is hilarious. Um, but there were times when I was heavily involved in that kind of music, and and I would wish I would secretly sort of say, "Gosh, you know, I wish I grew up." With this as my background, I wouldn't have to struggle so hard. I don't, I don't know how many people know this, but on his last record, Fromage, I play, I think, eight or nine tunes. And it took about a year. Now, granted, I was much busier at that point in my life than I was on his first record or any of Adam Nitti's records that I played on. So I'm going to give myself a little bit of leeway here but not much. The truth of the matter is, it was that that stuff was so hard. I was having to take a month to learn each song, and then we'd go into the studio on a weekend, 
and cut that thing. And sometimes that would take half the day. Um, and then once we were happy with that, I'd next song, you know, and on that went throughout basically what amounted to be about a year. Uh, I think it was 2010. That whole year was consumed with the massive work required. And I remember thinking, you know, guys like Weckl, you know, my hero, one of my heroes, these guys could probably sight read this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm killing myself with, with thoughts like that. Oh, these guys are so much better. They could just, they could sight read this or they could hear it once and like know where all the kicks are. And I'm struggling, you know, for a month and we get into the studio and it's like, can I make it through one take? You know, I know I'm gonna have to punch something in, but can I even just get through the song? You know? Uh, so there were times when, when the fact that I, w- I grew up playing rock bummed me out, but mm-hmm. not for long. You know, you get through that stuff, and then you're back to listening to your, you know, what you grew up on. And and I, and I gotta say, you know, I, I I'm happy to have played on all the 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 really difficult contempt jazz stuff. I am happy that you enjoyed what we did in jazz performance class, and I'm certainly proud of the work I did in the pop world. But I'm a rocker at heart, man. I mean, look at you know, I I. You can, you'll just as easily catch me jamming to some old 1980s Bon Jovi as, as anything else. I mean, sorry, uh, you know, that probably is, you know, not cool, but that's what I grew up on. That was what was happening on the radio at that time. And it, it brings back wonderful memories. And I, I think it'll always be that way. So, okay. So speaking of back then, what, so let's just say you're graduating high school, you went through those four years, you learned, you, you acquired the Rush drum set, you learned how to play the song. Uh, safe to say you're probably better than your peers at that point. Did you then think, I'm not going to go to college or I need to go to college? Like, how, like, what was the next step towards the path of becoming a pro? I am so glad you asked that question because I had it all wrong, man. Uh, one of the things that did happen in high school is we had a great band director who who pushed us to enter every competition that existed. And so I went and I won every one I ever entered. I know that sounds horrible. I'm really not trying to boast, but I did. I won I every it, single I, I won every single one. And so I had this inflated sense of worth. I thought especially after high school, because I was getting full scholarship offers from various colleges up the East Coast, because some of these competitions happened as as far north as as Virginia. Mm -hmm. So I had this, this, this inflated sense of worth. I really just thought that the world already knew who I was, and I camped out at home waiting for the limo like an idiot. I graduated in 1986, and in 1988, my parents and grandparents were like, "Um, we need to have a little talk. You're going to have to do something." And and seriously, I I don't I don't know how it took me that long to you know to 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 I don't know how they waited that long, but I really did. I just I had it all wrong, man. I did not develop any kind of sense of how to go out and get my own work. I really honestly thought I wasn't going to have to do anything. Because I hadn't had to do anything. It didn't occur to me that the schools were setting all of that up. I mean, it's true and duh, right? Like, how could I not know that? But I didn't. So I fell victim to the 
uh, that false sense of, oh, I'm great. I'm going to be fine. Everybody's going to already bull. That did not happen, obviously. <laughs> the universe is just going to hand it to you. Man, that was, and it was, it was a rough wake up call because that in and of itself was a defeat. Uh, you know, first it, it was defeating that it didn't happen. Then it was defeating all over again when I realized, well, Duh. Why didn't you get that two years ago? All of my friends went to uh, to college right after high school. Why didn't I? I, I don't uh, I blew a couple of years. And so I was working at a record store and a buddy of mine comes walking in, pulls up an LP by a band called Hallow's Eve and said, hey, you know, they're looking for a drummer. And that's when I finally broke that couple of year cycle of inactivity, inaction. And uh, that story is pretty funny. It's a cautionary tale, though. Don't Please don't ever do this. Anyone watching, please don't do this. I'm going to tell you the story, but don't ever do it. I can't believe it worked. I shouldn't be alive. Um, I got the singer's number from this friend of mine who held up the, the Hallow's Eve record. They had just released a record um, called Monument, actually, 1988. And I got the singer, uh, the singer's phone number. So I called him and got him on the phone. And he says, yeah, we already got somebody. Bye. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wasn't satisfied with that. So I called back and left all kinds of messages. And they were horrible. I don't care who you got. He sucks. You know, you're, you don't know what you're missing. You have just everything I could think to try and, you know, get the guy to call me back. And it was awful. Um, the kinds of things I was saying, perhaps I thought it was over and what could I lose? I, I don't know where my head was. <laughs> I don't know where my head was. It could have just been that I was 20 and being a, an idiot, which is probably what it was. You just really thought he needed you in the band. Dude. And I really wanted the gig, or so I thought, you know? And, and I did. I, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't. I was really stoked about the idea of, you know, going on tour with this heavy metal band. And again, I'm a rocker, you know? So I was like, God, this is for me. Look, you know, these guys are in the records. Like, that was another thing, too, is like, we have the records here where I work. This is, this is great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and be in this band. So I finally get a call from the guitarist, a dear friend to this day. His name is Dave Stewart. And he calls me up and he goes, hey, man, so <clears throat> I'm going to come by your house and I'm going to bring a guitar and a, and a 112 amp and we're going to sit down. We're going to play this stuff. And I want to see, you know, what you can do. And I was like, oh, OK, cool. I've been been working on the music. So come on. Guy comes over, hardly says a word, marches into the my bedroom. I had my drum set in my bedroom. So he's sitting on the corner of my bed and we play through a lot of their songs and he leaves with without a word. I mean, he might have said bye, maybe. And about a week later, I get a call from the bass player this time. So now I've talked to everybody in the band. And the bass player, Tommy Stewart, he says, hey, man, we want you to come down to rehearse too much. RTM. Very oh, famous. Yeah. Okay. Do you know about that place? Okay. Uh, of course. All right. Course. So, so RTM, man. So I go down there on a day that their current drummer was not supposed to be there. And as it turns out, this guy's name is Paul, and he was from Baltimore and was living with Dave, the guitarist. And so Dave was his ride, and it was really easy to just leave him home and show up in this secret band practice where I was going to be, the drummer. So I, I get behind this other guy's drum set, and it's me, the bass, and the, and, the, and the guitar, and we play what 
at the time was my favorite song by the band called No Sanctuary. And we're about halfway through the song, and Stacy, the singer, comes busting through the doors. And he's like, what is going on? And I thought he was mad. I got hired that day, and they sent Paul home the next day. And the tour started about two weeks after that, and we were on the road. Just like that. So Life-changing. Instant. Like, instant. Yeah. Yeah. So I couldn't have been more proud. I remember triumphantly quitting my job at Turtles records and tapes, which was where I was working. I failed to mention that. It became Blockbuster. I remember Turtles. Turtles on Memorial Drive right by 285, man. That was me. Running the video department that, again, would become Blockbuster. So, um, yeah, man. So now, instead of doing that, I'm driving down 285 every night, um, headed on my way to, you know, to 85 South to uh, Armor Circle, man, where RTM was. And, and man, I was the happiest I've ever, I'd ever been at that point. And we hit the road, man. And the whole summer, the we were out there with Leather Wolf and Anthrax and Fate's Warning and all these guys. And, you know, um, very special time in my life. I didn't make a dime. I think all I took home was was the per diem. Like, I never bothered to cut any deal. I was just happy to get the gig. And, you know, the business side of me was was still very underdeveloped. I made no money. I'm not mad about it, though. Like I said, it was, a, it was an amazing ex- experience. I'm really happy. I still have my backstage pass from that 1988 tour. Was it 30 years ago? You know. So I, out of curiosity, I know that you said that you wouldn't recommend that for anybody, but the not making a dime part is almost in lots of ways, it's like the cost of entry with a lot of these things. Like with recording, sometimes you might need to do some mixes for free at first before you get a shot. Like if you're an open, if you're a baby band on a label, your royalty rate's going to be terrible. Your advance is going to be super low. Like it is, you're not going to make money. You're not going to make any money for the first few years. Um, like there's, there's lots of parallels to your story there. So I'm wondering, you said that you wouldn't recommend that. Why am I saying which that? Part, the part which that part I, would you not recommend? Okay, good. Yeah, the, the part that, that I'm saying please don't do is be the cocky dick incessantly calling and leaving the guy. Got you of, the gig, though. It did work. That, that, that's the only caveat, right? Like, I have to kind of withdraw a little bit when I say it, but... I guess what I'm hoping is that people will be just as persistent, but just minus the arrogance. <laughs> I had just a supremely large head. I'm sure somebody would argue that I still do, but I, I, I really, really go out of my way to like not ever go there. Um, I don't. I'm, I'm uber cautious about ever coming across like that. I think because I came from that and it was such a turnoff. It did work though. It, it really did. But here's the, okay, here's the part I didn't tell you. Um, Stacy, the singer later told me on the, I was going to say on the tour bus, it was more like a van (laughs) (laughs) in the tour van, um, with a U-Haul trailing us, carrying all of our equipment, very low budget. That's probably why I didn't get paid. Anyway, he told me on the trip, he said, look, man, I sent Dave over there. And we were going to bring you to the rehearsal studio, whether or not you could play. And one of two things was going to happen. We were either going to hear you play well and you were going to get the gig or you weren't going to play well and we were going to beat the shit out of you. (laughs) 
All right, there you go. That's why you should do it then. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of response I got from leaving the kinds of messages I left. I mean, they were they were very like they were awful, you know. Uh, but yes, it did work. It it, it got Stacy to send Dave over because I think maybe even Tommy, the bass player, was like. Can we at least give this guy a shot? Because who in the world would say those things if they couldn't deliver? We, maybe we owe it to ourselves, you know. Uh, <clears throat> to hear them tell this story, they're a little nicer about it. But but I'm telling you how it actually went. You know, everybody's <laughs> everybody's older now, and like nobody nobody has that young angst that we all had. Um, gosh, oh my god, some of the best times of my life were in that band. We 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 really didn't have any money. And we would roll up to a gas station, and the, sometimes the owners would see us and just instantly turn the closed sign. They, they would just <laughs> they would lock the door. We just look. I guess we looked like hooligans. I mean, we looked like I look now, except thirty years younger. Uh, and then other places didn't close, <clears throat> and they probably should have. Um, they got to the point where they couldn't take me into the store with them because there's something in my psychological makeup. There's something about my character that when I see things, when I see people doing certain things that are illegal, I, I laugh. I don't know why. It's not funny. It's like the same thing, how people laugh when other people fall. I, I don't find it funny when people trip and fall. <laughs> Some people do, though. I'm one of those people that will laugh. Sometimes I do. Right? I mean, yeah, sometimes it is. But for the most part, I usually just feel bad for them, or I imagine myself falling, and then it hurts. But I would see Dave, the guitarist, We'd go into these stores. <laughs> Sorry, Dave, if you're watching this, I'm, I'm telling on you. But it's it was so oh my god, it was so it was such comedy. He would go to like you know like in in, in the quick tip in the in the QTs now where they have the hot dogs. And just you just make them. He would mm-hmm. hide and just eat, you know, and wolf down two or three of them before anybody even noticed. You know, there's no way he's going to pay for it. And just me seeing him do that was that was all it took. And so me laughing would sometimes attract attention from the proprietor. So they're like, what do you want? We'll buy it for you. You stay in the van. You know, <laughs> man, some of the it just some of the funnest times, man, I, I, it's trivial and, and ludicrous. But oh, I still laugh to this day. Well, how how did that lead to then, you know, I'm sure that it wasn't like the next month, mm-hmm. but how how do you go from that touring in a band in a van mm-hmm. on a metal gig? How does it lead to TLC and that whole world? Okay, so how that worked is it was right after that that I um went to Georgia State finally. The college of choice for me was was right here in in Georgia. And so I met a lot of great players there, uh, Sam Skelton on sax and uh, Tom McGill, John Hancock, a lot of the instructors there. I was the go-to drummer at, after about a year. I was the go-to drummer that the jazz, in, the instructors band, who would go out to high schools and try to recruit new students who were graduating. I was the drummer that would go out with all the instructors uh, as a jazz band, and we would go play at all these high schools. So I made a lot of great connections. And these people would hire me outside of school. And so you just expand your uh, horizons. You didn't leave them any nasty messages? No, 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 no. No, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Uh, I I don't know how quickly it 
it caught I caught on to how bad of an idea that was. I don't know if I, in other words, I think I might have still had a horribly large head, but um, nonetheless, these these guys were suffering that. <laughs> And hiring me and, and asking me to come and play at all these gigs. And so I just, I, I expanded my circle of friends. Um, then I got married uh, to my first wife and we just both quit at the same time, school, and just like tried to be a, a couple, you know. And that lasted for about a year and we left on amicable terms. We didn't have any property or any kids. And so it was kind of like breaking up really, uh, yeah. just on paper. And she is now a plastic surgeon in Florida, <laughs> making a ton of money. She went back to school, <laughs> uh, which I did not. I uh, started, after we split up, uh, I started back trying to get work in the industry. I, I didn't go back to school, funny enough. I, I was like, well, I'm already not going to school, and I'm kind of working. Let me just get more of that work. That's and, exactly what I did when I dropped out of college, like, for the first few years— it was like, maybe I should go back. That was what AIM was. Like, it was maybe I should go back to school, but I'm kind of working. Why don't yeah. I just get more work? That's exactly how I felt about it. Yeah. And and so uh, I was successful uh, to a certain degree. I landed a, a bit role in that TV show, In the Heat of the Night, as a drummer for the first annual Policeman's Ball um, with Carol O'Connor and whoever else was in that show. And I think Sam Skelton actually was on the gig as the sax player and probably a bunch of other Georgia State so, folks. So in the episode, the police it was a police ball, and you played it, drums in the band in that episode. Yes. We, of course, okay. we weren't actually playing anything real, but it looks like we're playing. And I, I had, like, this crappy kit, so I borrowed a friend of mine's kit that looked good enough to be on camera. I mean, it was, whoo, talking about paying your dues. Uh, I didn't even have a decent drum set, you know, good enough to appear on a TV show. I needed to borrow a legit drum set from a friend of mine who didn't really play. Isn't that weird? You got a guy who actually plays playing junk, guy who doesn't play, got a great kid. <laughs> that, that's actually, I wish it was weird. I just, I know that it's kind of a for problem a long, now, isn't it? I know for a long time, uh, a lot of guitar players I know who make their living at it will always joke about doctors who played in a band once in high school who own like a $50,000 guitar. Yeah, man. You know, like yeah. some custom made <laughs> piece of magic, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that was it. And then I would, I befriended Jeff Sipe. Um, we used to get together and jam at his place on East Lake. And he was really helpful in uh, introducing me to the right people um, I would sub for him on certain gigs, and I got to meet Bill, the legendary Bill Hatcher, um, you know, guitarist in Atlanta who's been around forever and played on everything. And it just kind of evolved from there. And then at some point, um, I got invited to be the, the drummer for Skin Deep because a buddy of mine, Rob Clayton, who was one of the original founders of the band, quit. And somebody from Georgia State remembered me. I got the call, and next thing you know, I'm in that band. And we're showcasing in front of Claude Austin, who was Dallas Austin's brother. He's, he died, sadly. But at the time, he was one of Dallas's main talent scouts. And so our first gig with me as the drummer was at Avondale Town Cinema, in 1992, October of 1992, and Claude Austin was there. 
and we threw down, man. I mean, a year's worth of practice for that first show. We were as tight of a band as I've ever been in. And he went back to Dallas, and within a year, I think, maybe two years, um, Dallas had signed our singer Terrence, or T. Smith, as he went uh, on Rowdy Records. They called him T. Smith. So the rest of the band got called in to record music for the T. Smith project, which never came out. But one of the songs landed on a motion picture soundtrack by uh, called Fled with Lawrence Fishburne and one of the Baldwin brothers. The movie didn't do very well, but it was our first real credit. So here I am, you know, early 20s, and I've, I've actually got a record credit for a guy that I had been playing with for a couple of years, and we were a tight ensemble. That was how I met Dallas Austin. From there, he would start inviting me to play on any project he was working. So the first of those was Deborah Killings. I got a call. Hey, can you be in Nashville tomorrow? Yes. <laughs> cancel, <laughs> cancel whatever. I'm out of here. And he put me up in a corporate apartment. Really nice. I mean, fully furnished, even like laundry facilities. It was great. For about a year, uh, a year, about a month and a half, and we just lived, I lived in Nashville that summer, and we recorded her, her whole record. I think I played eight or nine songs, and it was just, it was great. It was the best, that was the the new best time in my life. I was like, I'm being, I'm actually getting paid a lot of money. I'm, I feel like I'm on vacation. I've always wanted to be around these guys in this professional environment, and everybody, all the way down to the intern, these were people that really knew what they were doing. And they were making me sound like a million dollars. I couldn't have been happier. And I met a lot of people on the gig. I met Salt and Pepper. I met Chili from TLC, who I'd later play with. Um, and that's how it started. Next, I think, was Monica. Played on her record. That came out. And then it was TLC's turn. And I got to play Unpretty on the fan mail record. And then instantly got invited to play in the band. And we started off uh, in Japan in the, at the Budokan for a, a week, came back, did Jay Leno, Rosie O'Donnell, and then we did the tour. And man, the rest is history, as they say. Um, that just turned into all kinds of other work. Um, mm -hmm. In the meantime, I, I should have somehow inserted AIM in there back in the mid-90s, uh, right after Skin Deep, right around that time that we were starting to work with Dallas and the band was kind of ending and T Smith's project was beginning. That's when I got into aim. So I think 94 to be exact. Uh, so I was teaching all along, uh, which is nice supplemental income when, you know, the feast or famine part of the music business happens. You know, you've got this other sort of thin line of work mm -hmm. keeps some income uh, coming in. So that's, I hope Ooh. I, uh, I hope I got you through. Hey everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many 
others. Then, at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for your use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really want to step up the game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 40 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hour sessions with us and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urmacademy.com to find out more. So what I understand is that basically you kept making a good impression with your playing over and over again, and you had to be okay to hang out with or no one would have recommended you. Um, yeah. That's what I'm getting from it, that... Uh, yeah. You kept walking the walk over and over and over in every situation you were put in so that people yeah. would then pass you on to the next person on and on and on till, uh, you know, till TLC, but, and then on from there. But uh, did you have aspirations of getting to that level or is it just something that happened? No, I did have aspirations. Uh I should probably talk a little bit about my efforts that were in total vain. It, they didn't amount to anything. But this was what I thought I needed to do when I once I had figured out what I wanted, which was not to be in a band anymore. I'd had a taste of this side musician thing. Going in and playing drums for T. Smith and then maybe being able to do that for a lot of other... It just suddenly dawned on me, wait a minute. Rather than be the drummer of one band, why don't I be the drummer for a bunch of people? especially if they're famous and have a lot of money in their budget. Well, like, right? You know, I don't have, <laughs> if I travel, it'll be just to another comfortable studio rather than camping in some campsite because we don't have enough money for a hotel in a raggedy tour, you know. <laughs> Been there. Gosh, yeah, right. Let's, let's do that. Can we do that? So I paid a guy named Jack Petrus here in Atlanta who I had done some work with as a freelance drummer. He had a really nice studio in his basement. I paid him studio time and his one-inch tape machine, bought a reel of tape, hired Mike Hartnett on bass to come in and throw down just some styles. I, I didn't even know what I needed to do to promote myself. So I said, okay, I'm just going to go into the studio. I'm going to pay, pay some time, pay this guy to come in and play with me a bunch of different styles. And so I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I handed out this cassette tape uh, I, had, I had 50 duplicates made. I think I had some folder with some kind of a press kit in it, maybe even a photo. I, I don't remember what it had in it. It couldn't have been much because I hadn't done anything really. And so I set up all these interviews with, you know, cold calling these guys in Atlanta who I didn't know. One of them was Ricky Keller, the legendary Ricky, Ricky Keller, um, who sadly has, 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 has passed on. But at the time... 
Uh, he answered the phone and, and, and let me come over with my demo. And I'll never forget how that went. I walked in that studio and he, he was kind of standoffish. And I handed him the tape and he says, okay, well, thank you. And I said, Do you, don't you want to hear it? No. <laughs> well, why? He goes, because if it sucks, I don't want to have to tell you. Like, wow. just bam, right? And I didn't nice. think it sucked, but there, yeah, right? Now, Ricky and I would later become really good friends, playing on all kinds of projects, just magic. We played on Pat Walsh's record, Doria Roberts's projects. I mean, and he's an amazing bass player and French hornist. Is that a word? French hornist? French horn player? I think so. I'm going to take it. I'm going to claim it. Certainly yeah, bassist. It works. <laughs> uh, and, and he used to play with Jeff Sipe and all those guys, too. So I remember hearing the name, which is probably why I called him in the first place. I am really rambling here. But where I'm headed is that one of the phone calls I made was to Dallas Austin Recording Projects. And I didn't get anybody on the phone that I thought I would get. In fact, instead, I got the head of their accounting department, a guy named Julian Wright, who I'm still friends with to this day. He was cool enough to let me come up to their sixth floor on Marietta Street back when they were in that location. They had, they had the entire sixth floor of that building, and oh, it was so cool. You, once you got off the elevator, you, you were in another world. You know, It was like Disney or something. And you get to walk through that those hallways and end up in this office. And I didn't know Julian, but he was really, really cool to me. And he listened to the entire demo and was like super stoked about everything he heard. Even at one point, I think he even picked up the phone and like called somebody and like instantly started started trying to sell me. And he was the one um, that called me later that summer and said, hey, can you be in Nashville tomorrow? It was him. So it did work. So it's possible that that had something to do with it. I don't. I never knew if that was a coincidence that he just happened to be the guy with my number because the, I don't know that Dallas ever heard that stuff. And Dallas already knew me from the Skin Deep days. So I don't know if that worked or not. I, you know, I don't know. It, maybe it did. I don't know. Um, but, you know, the thing that's interesting, though, is that you were attacking it from multiple angles. You weren't. So as opposed to what you said you were doing when you had first graduated high school, which is just waiting for the world to come to you, um, whether or not it worked properly to cold call all those people. I mean, it's kind of like you can't really quantify whether in lots of ways, whether certain types of marketing or um, what part of the network that you built really adds up to the final result. But the point is that you weren't just you weren't just putting all your eggs in one basket. You were trying multiple different things. And I mean, that's what worked for me as well in my career is to not just, not just go at it one way. I've always attacked things from multiple angles. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't know if you can say exactly that that demo is the reason you got the gig, but it doesn't seem like hundred percent coincidence. And at the very, very least, um, the kind of person who goes to those lengths, you know, like I know that like when I'm hiring somebody, like for instance, we have an employee who's 21 who has a lot of responsibility and it's crazy that he's 21, but he had that kind of drive and proved that he was good for the gig. Um, 
that kind of drive is infectious and people notice it. It's kind of like, I think like people, successful people know that notice their own kind, even if, uh, even if that person's not successful yet, it's just like, um, I, I don't think it's coincidence. That's my opinion. No, I, you know, I'm, I'm with you and something that I've kind of always subscribed to, um, even in high school, I remember reading Napoleon Hill's think and grow rich in high school. Oh yes. And he talks about the secret. And now we have this Rhonda Byrne book and video that came out 10 years ago called The Secret. And anybody who's ever read Think and Grow Rich knows what that is without even watching it. It's, it is that. And it's that whole law of attraction thing. And I don't think I was making a conscious effort to do it, but I do think that there, there is, again, there's that moment, that word momentum again, you know, when mm-hmm. you're, when you're out for something and you're not going to let no stop you the word no stop you you're going to just find another way around right and and eventually you're going to get where you're going i didn't know if any of it would work but i knew what wouldn't work what i did those two years after high school that didn't do anything so i was bound and determined not to repeat that inaction so if anything, I just countered that with like the exact opposite. I just, you know, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I think there's something to that. Um, I think there's How something to that. How many no's did you get? Well, none of the people that I met with hired me with the exception of Dallas. And again, I'm not sure that that wasn't already in the works from the fact that we had done work prior. I had a taste of the good life with the T. Smith thing. And then we didn't hear anything from him. Like, that was it. The Teeth Smith project didn't get released. There was no tours. There was no shows. So you tasted it, and then it, it was taken away. So I was like, okay, how do, I, how do I get more of that? Which was why I made the demo and started cold calling. I was like, okay, I desperately need to get back in. So, yeah, I, you know, I don't know, man. I, I just was... I refuse to give up. And that's kind of my thing. Like, I hate being beaten. You know, I, I just don't handle defeat very well, you know? So a lot of the bad days, like I was talking about in the very beginning of this episode, a lot mm-hmm. of those bad days are days where I feel defeated by whatever. Like like I say, you, you, I'm, I'm trying to do something on the drums that's not working. I'm trying to do some exercise out on my bars that I can't do. I suddenly can't hurl myself over the bar. Wait a minute, what's wrong? I was doing this yesterday. I don't get it. Oh, I suck. There's something wrong. I didn't really get, I don't really have it yet, you know? Um, yeah, man, I just don't accept, I don't accept defeat. I just, I will, no matter how bummed out and mad I get, I'll come back five minutes later. Five minutes. I'm going to do this. Five minutes. I'm going to do this, man. <laughs> Damn it. You know, like I just, I, I it's, kind of childish in a way uh, that I just, it just sort of stubbornness, but I just don't, man. I don't. And I, I think that's all that was going on back, uh, back in the nineties is I tasted it and I wanted another taste and I didn't have anything better to do. And shoot, why not? It's just a phone call, right? You know, yeah, just make exactly. a phone call. Just see, see. And a lot of times people pick up like, <clears throat> wow, <laughs> you know, I don't know why I expected it to be hard. It's not. What's that quote that just showing up yeah. is half the gig? Yes. Yeah, I, I really do think that's true. You know, on that topic of not giving up. So, you know, so you've been teaching since the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you've had a lot of students go through. And I know that a few of them have gone on to do big things. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything in common between them and you and just what you've seen uh, out on the road with like the superstars? Like, is there something that you see in these students too? I do actually. Um, There's a couple of things that I think attributes that I would say we share, you know, me and Josh Baker, the drummer for Mariah Carey, or me and Terrell Sass, who is constantly working, you know, with various artists as both a producer and a writer and a winner of, I think he even won a Grammy, Um, and a couple of others. The traits that they have, and I think it took me a while to acquire, is that they are easy to work with. People like being around them. So there's a family vibe. There's a familiarity there just right off the bat. And, man, that goes a really long way. You don't even have to be the best uh, in order order for that part of your personality to work wonders for you. But then they are good. And that would be the other trait is that these are guys that took their craft— really, really seriously. They didn't make excuses when things weren't working. They attacked the problem and tried to prevent it from ever happening again. Again, without blaming others, you know? That kind of ties in with the getting Mm -hmm. along well thing because people who don't get along well are typically blaming someone else and that just makes them mad and that's part of the problem. These guys didn't do any of that. And so if I had to say... That, that I share anything with these successful drummers. And these are guys that are way more successful than me. Like they've certainly outdone that whole student outdoing the teacher by a mile. Like I'm looking up to them. It's, I'm proud to be able to say I taught them, but they're just, they've gone, you know, light years past what I did. And, and it's, I think it's because of those, those two things. And maybe more, uh, maybe they had even more drive and determination. Maybe, they made even more calls than I did. You and know? I also had an example to look up to. Um, well, like I'll, as I'll, I'll take it. I'll take whatever no, I can get. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying like back to what we were talking before about modeling other people. Um, yeah. You gave them a good example to model right there. So you kind of set the stage in a way for them to be able to, you know, in yeah. your words, outdo the teacher. Yeah, man. Um and I saw a lot of guys that were in those same classes as Josh Baker and in the same classes as Terrell. And I'm going to say something that I don't want to come out the wrong way, but I'm just going to say it. There were guys who on a technical level could play better than both of those two, two drummers on a technical level, mm-hmm. but did not work because solely because of their attitude. It shouldn't have been that way. These were guys that had some serious facility. And struggle now, even, and certainly back then. Um, And I am convinced that the other half of the equation is that workability factor. Are you are you cool? Like, can people hang out with you when you're not on stage? And if the answer is no, guess what? Because tour life, that's all it is. You are locked in a bus or in in a cooped up somewhere with these other people. You had better be able to get along. And uh, even on the big gigs, it, it's there's it's still a tiny little area that you're. Yeah, I mean, a tour bus, a tour bus is a lot smaller than people realize. Man, yeah, it's really really <laughs> nice and way better than a van, but it it is by no means 
isolating you from everybody else. You are still a tiny little family and there can't be any bad dynamics. And I was very fortunate to have a group of guys on the TLC tour anyway that just loved each other. I mean, every it was it was comedy all day long, man. Man, it was uh I was lucky. I had a lot of uh, 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 great experiences with with people who were easy to get along with. But I think some of the guys that from AIM who who soared, that's it. That's that is one of the main reasons they were they were good at their craft. By no means am I, I am I saying otherwise. But they were genuinely easy to get along with, and man, that'll keep you in the door. If you can get in the door, that will keep you there. Man, I'm so glad you said that because. Uh... I feel like I've been saying that on this podcast almost to the point of getting redundant because, you know, we talk to a lot of great people on this podcast, great producers or great musicians, or sometimes I have people who aren't even in music who have just done great things. And that's, everybody says that, that, mm-hmm. um, yes, it's assumed that you're good. Like, and if, you don't need to be like the Einstein of music. You just need to be, Good. And that's assumed that if you're showing up like that, your skills are assumed. The other part is what actually translates into making a living out of it Mm -hmm. um, is Mm -hmm. do people want to be around you? Right. Uh, Can they handle the way you breathe and the way that you sound when you eat? (laughs) Right. Yes. That's a real thing, man. That's a real thing. I know, I know it is. (laughs) Yeah, man. Believe me. (laughs) I definitely know it is. So, how does that lead to voice acting and the video thing? Because I know when I met you, you were already doing the video thing. And I, I don't know if you had gone into the voice acting yet, but like that, yeah. how does, so what's all that about? So in, when the tour ended, when the TLC tour was over in 2000, um, I noticed that everybody was making press kit, EPKs, electronic press kits. And back in those days, it was VHS, and they were about eight minutes in length. And the whole point was to have this video presentation of a new artist or their new release anyway that they could ship out to whomever in an effort to sort of convince them, hey, play this video or play this song on the radio. It was just another marketing tool for the record labels to use to get their the word out about their artists. And I thought, well, maybe I should do the same thing. And so I went to the video producers that created all the imagery on the huge screen behind us every night on tour. They were right here in Atlanta called Image Mill. They're still around. And I went over there and I said, hey, you guys got all this footage of me on the road. And I think at one point they even interviewed me. So I knew they had that tape somewhere. And I said, how much would you charge me to make an EPK? And they said, well, we normally get 20000 but we'll do it for 10000 for you since you're, you know, family. Oh, nice. <laughs> right. So yeah. I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so I went, a deal right there. <laughs> dude, right? So I went straight to, uh, I think, Walden Books back when there were bookstores. And I bought digital video editing for dummies for $25. And it had a limited version of Adobe Premiere and Adobe After Effects. And I learned that summer how to operate that software enough to create a, a video and I had taken a lot of footage on a little digital Hi8 camera of my own. So I just cobbled together an, an electronic press kit. And then I tried to copy, once again, find somebody who's doing it right, copy them. VH1 behind the music was huge back then. And so I copied their format of animating pictures and zooming in on certain aspects of, a, of an image to get a point across, narrating whatever is not being spoken in an interview. 
And then I conducted my own interviews. I just pretended like somebody was asking me a question and I would answer it like off camera. Like I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, see how I'm not like, like not, not looking at you. <laughs> I would just yeah. be pretending to answer this question and I would, I cut that thing together. So at the end of the summer, I took that eight minute VHS back to Image Mill and I said, tell me what you think of this before I start sending it out. And the first thing they did at the end of the video, they said, well, did you make this? I said, yeah. So the guy's like, um, okay, so here's the key. Uh, here's the alarm code. Uh, you're hired. And your first job is to cut Charlie Wilson's EPK for the release of Bridging the Gap, a record he had was about to release. So that was my first job. Like, Were you even looking for a job? No. I was just like, okay. is, is this suck? Can I send this out and not be embarrassed? They hired me on the spot. So I took the blessing. I'm like, cool, I'm, I'm in, I guess. Um, I'm still going to send this video out, but I'm going to come here and learn and make money. And so I did. I cut Charlie Wilson from the Gap Band, his, his sh uh, record called Bridging the Gap. I did a lot of work for Pink there. Warner Brothers released uh, a one-hour cut-down version of the TLC fan mail show. Guess who got to edit that down for Warner Brothers? The guy in the show. Perfect. They were like, oh, you're definitely getting this gig. You, you know the music better than any of us. Get on it. So I cut all these shows for Image Mill. And then after a while, they started, I don't know, something was happening. They were having a hard time paying, uh, collecting money. I don't know what was going on. And one of the other editors got let go. And Mill came to me and he said, his guy's name is Mill, Image Mill. Mill Cannon came to me and says, hey, I owe you about $4,500. How about I give you this video deck instead and you go start a company? And that's exactly what I did. I was like, cool, see ya. Go home. <laughs> and I start editing videos. And in 2001, I incorporated with the ridiculous name Nighttime Studios, which I still have today, all the money that I make goes to the corporation. It's an S-corp. And um, yeah. Yeah, S-corps. S-corps, man. Yep. Yes, sir. And so... I, yeah, first job I got was uh, printed circuit board design, a two-minute trade show videos, 10000 bucks. I thought I was rolling, man. I'm like, I'm making money. Um, this, is the, this, is, this is it. Um, by the way, I'm still teaching at AIM. I'm still trying to get work with the, with the EPK video, which, by the way, that EPK video did land me the job as the drummer for Leanne Rimes, and I was going oh, to make so much money. I don't even want to tell you how much it was going to be. Um, but I knew the manager, a guy named Mark St. Louis, and he had taken us to TLC to Japan once. And that's how I knew him. He was now running Leanne Rimes's gig. So I get him the video. He shows her, she picks me, then promptly gets in some kind of accident that ruined the tour. <laughs> it didn't happen. Thanks, Leanne. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, hey, it's all good. But yeah, win some, you lose some. But I figured, I still thought of that as a win. I'm like, okay, this video actually works. So, well, maybe, yeah, you won. You know, the, but I, I that think, was not in your control. What happened after that? No, and and I think, but I think, I still think that there was something. I kind of started recognizing maybe I have more than just musicality working for me. Maybe there, maybe I've got an eye for this other thing that I never knew. I had, and I was mm -hmm. being told by a lot of the producers who were teaching me, yeah, you've, you've got the eye, like you seem to, you, you seem to get it. They would tell me that. And I don't know if I believed them, but I, 
was happy that they were saying it, and I just kept trying to. One of those guys was my was my first animated animating hero. Everything he animated, I was trying to copy, and mostly unsuccessful. But it would still it was still pushing me in the right direction. And he recognized that I was looking up to him, so he would take me on all these shoots out of town and everything. And I just learned so much about how to produce a spot, how to work on in broadcast media and everything else. And so I started doing that for AIM, and uh, and 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 I was still getting business through Nighttime Studios. And then um, the prices of a lot of the animating software dropped, and suddenly there was this huge influx of people making video. This was before cell phones were shooting 2K or 4K video. So suddenly everybody was in the game, and prices drop when that happens. It's just supply and demand. One of the first things that clients would, would, would scratch off the list is professional VO. They didn't want to pay $500 or $1,000 for Gene Barrett, who I love, they're like, ah, oh, just you do it. Okay, let's try this, and would suck horribly. And so the more of that I realized I was going to have to do, the more I realized I needed to learn how to do it. So I started taking lessons. I started reading books and finding heroes in that world, and I found that I really liked it. You know, and I'm like, shoot, if I can make money doing this, I don't even want to do video anymore. Let, let the kids with the phones do it. Let me just talk. It's easier. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to lug around a bunch of, you know, lights and tripods. I just, I got my little Neumann U87 here going through a Focusrite pre into, right into the DAW. It's all good, man. Let me good just, to go. Let me just sit here with my coffee and air conditioning and just do this. So that's how it worked. That That's how I got here. And that's where I'm at now. Got you. That's the amazing. <laughs> yeah, that that's actually pretty amazing. And it's interestingly enough that I see a parallel. I can relate to that because um, what I'm doing now, I never even imagined doing. You know, ten years ago, I would have never saw that happening. Yeah. And it was only because in 2013, my best friend. Uh, he was working for a company called Creative Live, and he had just convinced them to start an audio channel. And I was the producer guy he knew, so he asked me to come teach a class on it. And I actually thought it was going to be lame. Um, I thought it would be lame to get on camera. I didn't feel right. I felt like an imposter. But I did it for him, so I flew to Seattle, and it went great. And so we just did more and more, and it, everyone started getting bigger. And... Um, my classes were doing better than producers who were like 10 times bigger than me who would go on creative live. And it's like thinking maybe there's something to this. And I actually really enjoy it. I like this, doing this a hell of a lot more than working with bands, even in the studio. I like it more than being in a band. Uh, I just like it better. And I've always wanted to start a business and it just, you know, went down that rabbit hole and, now we're crushing. So it's it's interesting. I think that if in 2013, if I had stayed negative and been like, this is lame, or when I was 15, I wanted to be a guitar player. So now that I'm 33 or whatever I was then, like I have to still be a guitar player and I still have to maintain the exact same dream I had when I was 15. And you don't have to. You can mm -hmm. You can take on new things in life. It's okay. That is exactly right. In fact, I think it might yeah. even be necessary now. 
Yes, I completely agree with that. Uh, you know, I think what they say, the average millennial will have five careers. That's what I something read. Something like that? I read the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Probably Inc. Magazine or something. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Uh, it's true from everything I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yep, it is. And I'm I'm happy. Sometimes I feel spread thin if a lot of these potential bosses that I have, you know, converge on a single point of time, you know, sometimes that mm-hmm. can get a little hairy, but most of the time, uh, it's a nice, convenient, comfortable juggling act of, let me do this at this point in the day. Let me do that on that day. And I'm doing all kinds of different things. I never get bored, but I'm also not stressed. I don't know. I like it. I, I dig it. I dig doing different things. Okay. And yeah. the last thing I want to ask you about, well, two things I want to ask you about. And then I have a couple questions from our students. Um, the fitness thing. I just noticed, because I've been following you online, you just started posting insane workout videos of, your, of yourself becoming a oh, superhero. What's, what's going on there? So I, I, was, I, was, I thought I was a little overweight um, a few years ago. And I just, I'd always been interested in fitness. And so I just kind of made a commitment to try and find a kind of working out that I could stick with. I had tried insanity. I had tried P90X and all these things and went through the program, but they were just so utterly hard and not fun that I never went back. They worked, but at what price? And so I found a workout a couple of years back called 300. And it's what the Gerard Butler and all those guys who made the movie 300. It was the workout that they used. And it was just six basic exercises, 50 reps each, however long it took. There was no time limit. So even if it took all day, as long as you did 50 reps times six of these exercises, you were done. And I loved that. Like that was simple and I could take all day. And so that started working. Did it take all day? In the beginning it did. In the beginning it absolutely did. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't do 50 pull-ups at once. No way. And so um, I don't even think I can do that now, but I got to the point before I moved over to what I'm doing now where I was doing two sets of 25 pull-ups. So I could knock it out in just a couple of minutes. That's but pretty intense, actually. A, yeah, you're out of breath for a while after that, but it you got you you get to the point where you can do it. And so uh, about a half a year ago, I just remembered something my dad said about these guys who could who could do a pull-up and then all the way over the top. I didn't even know what the name of that was. So I'm like searching online, like, okay, pull up where you go all the way up, you know? And finally I stumbled upon somebody who like knew what I was talking about. And they said, oh yeah, that's a muscle up. And so instantly I was able to find all these tutorials on muscle ups. Couldn't do one for a month, man. Like I undertook the project of building a seven foot bar and and anchoring it to my deck underneath my deck. We've got a, a covered deck. So I can get out there even if it's raining and do this stuff. You talk about feeling bummed out. Like I spend this money and build all this stuff and look, watch all these tutorials. Couldn't do one. So typical me, I'm pissed and I'm out there every day. And I'm like, but I've done 10,000 pull-ups in the last two years. You know, I can bench press way more than I weigh. I mean, what the, you know, why is this not happening? And I realized something a long time ago that I, I don't know why it took so long to apply here. If I want to get good at something, you ha- I have to do that thing. I can't do a bunch of other things 
that are supposed to help this. You just jump right in and do the thing you're wanting to get good at. Mm-hmm. A particular lick on the drums. Oh, go practice this in the air. Go practice this on a non-bouncing surface. And then, no, no, set that stuff aside and just get to work on the thing you want to get good at. So when I started applying that process to the muscle-ups, man, it was like three days. Three days later, I was over the bar. Now, I could only do one at a time, but I was so happy. Like the first time, I've got it on my phone, the first one ever. I was like a kid. Oh, my God, I, I did it, you know. And the same level of positive feedback and momentum that we were talking about earlier just happened. And I fell in love with it. it there's, there's something about other workouts where the body is static and you're moving weight around, okay, like a bench press or dumbbells or whatever. Th- okay, that works. But there's something more fun about the exercise apparatus not moving and you being the thing that's getting moved. All of a sudden, you're flipping around, and you're doing all these cool moves, and it, it's building the same muscles. In fact, it's building more because you're now you're activating all parts of your body, not just the muscle that you're focusing on when you're laying down on a bench. So I was like, oh, why didn't I see this earlier? So I just, I ate it up, man. I'm still eating it up. You know, me and my little boy, before this podcast interview, we were in the next room over and I was working on handstands and he's over there on the pull-up bar with a, with a rubber band helping him up because he's, you know, he's nine. He's still not quite strong enough to do a bunch, but he, I think he got bit by the bug. It's just, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know how to explain it other than I can't get enough of it. And I love that. It, I'm pumped like every day. Like I have to tell myself, okay, I can't work out today. I need a day off. I need to rest. I need to recuperate. It's really hard. I, I actually like it as much as I like doing anything. And uh, Sounds like you took your same, uh, whatever it is that got you to work out you with drums, that same type of focus and yeah, you well, know how to learn things it's, and applied it to working out. Yes, it's, it's, I can't do this, but I really want to. And I found somebody online as an, a, once again, a hero. I think it's important to have heroes who's amazing at it and who offered all this instruction. I did what he said and it worked. And there's that, again, that positive feedback loop. You, you experience success and it, you just crave even more. And you're the dude who would go to the Tony Robbins seminar and it would actually work for them. I probably uh, so, right? Probably yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's it, man. And so I, I, I'm going to do it as long as I, as long as I'm able, uh, you know, and I, there are guys out there who are in their sixties who look 30 because of this stuff. So, and then they act 30 I and mean, you wouldn't know, you would not know that they were that old. I'll just say that, um, this is sounds like a whole rabbit hole we could go down and I'd love to have you back on to just talk about mastery. Um, just have, do a whole podcast, just talking about mastery and let's do it. I'll come over there so we don't have to worry about tech, you know, the technological stuff, if you like. Absolutely. That would be great. I mean, we're in the same town. Let's do it. I've got some uh, questions here from some of our listeners and, uh, this one's from Hal Longview. And when you started drumming, how were you able to train your limbs to be polyrhythmic? So I don't believe there is such a thing as independence. I I think that is a myth. I think that is something invented by instructors to sell books. And it was Jack Bell who taught me that. And I fought him tooth and nail until he said, okay, fine. 
here's proof. And he wrote down this, this exercise and he presented it to me ceremoniously. And I arrogantly took it out of his hand and took one look at it and was like, you're right. You know what it was? Quarter notes in right hand, quarter notes in the left hand, quarter notes in the right foot, quarter notes in the left foot. Couldn't be easier, except quarter notes. It wasn't easy. 100 BPM, 105, 110, 115. No one can do that. No one. If we were truly independent beings, that would be a non-issue. You could get four different people, hook them up with four different time clicks, and as long as they weren't paying attention to the rest, independent, they could do it. You assigned any two of those tempos to one human being, it's not going to work. And even if at the end of their lives, they did get good at, at 100 and 105, I could ruin it by changing one of them one tick, right? Independence is a, is a myth. So the answer to that question is treat everything like an entire, like, like treat your whole body like it's one, one limb. And my trick was I would look at a piece of music that had all kinds of independent writings. I would look at it vertically and I would I, disregard the tempo, like get somebody on, on the other side of the stand. That's what I used to do with my students. And I would have a pencil and I'd say, only play what's underneath my pencil. Okay, good, good. All right, move, play that, play that. And it wouldn't sound like anything, but the point was to train the order of muscular firings to occur in the same order as they were presented on the page. Never mind that you could isolate any one of the limbs and say, okay, well, that, that limb is playing a clave, that limb is playing eighth notes, that limb is playing quarter notes. That, that, that's pointless. What we were able to do is get, I would pull a guitarist in from the hallways at AIM and have them playing some of the most complex polyrhythmic music in 10 minutes with that procedure. These are people that never played drums before. And the drummers have been playing years, not still not able to do these things. And I'm like, you don't have to imagine all these separate limbs zipping together like a zipper. No, treat your whole body like one big limb and just learn the order of muscular firings slow enough to where you won't make any mistakes. And eventually you'll be able to speed that up. You just have to be patient during the process where it doesn't sound like anything. And it doesn't sound like anything at first. Funny enough, you get through this enough times, 10 minutes or so, not long, and you start being able to speed it up because your body starts to get used to, oh, this is that part where this happens. This is that part where nothing happens. Oh, I got this. And an hour later, you're doing it at full speed. A week later, you're able to, ironically, dissect one limb at a time. Now, all of a sudden, it feels like you could change this one limb or change that one limb. But the process was backwards. We ate the elephant in one bite. The idea that you're going to work on this arm and then this arm and then at some point put them together, to me, is a huge waste of time. I never, I never did that. I never did that. And I was able to play anything within an hour by just forgetting what other people are going to teach. Oh, learn this line, learn that line, and put them together. No, nope. Forget time, forget music for a moment. Learn the pattern. Speed that up. You'll get there a lot faster. You know, I can back that up. My dad, um, he was a percussion major in college, and so he's a drummer, believe it or not. 
And I know this is going to sound really simple to you or to drummers out there, but just remember, I'm not a drummer and never have been. So grew up with my dad being a percussionist, and he would always do, when he'd get bored at a restaurant, he gets bored a lot, uh, he would just start tapping three over two. And I just thought it sounded really cool. So I learned the pattern um, and what it sounded like and what it was rather than, and so I just started doing it without thinking the fact that I've got triplets in one hand and eighths on the other. When I would start to think about that, like, uh, later when I was older and I knew what triplets were and eighth notes were, um, that would start to trip me out. Like if I started to try to dissect it, but then if I just listened in my head to what the music of it was supposed to be, mm-hmm. the shit was easy. Right. And so I just imagined always that that's what it would be if I was a drummer yes. uh, trying to learn this stuff that, exactly right. that is that sort of thing. That's all it is. So, yeah. All right. Here's a question from AJ Vienna. Um, okay. He says, what a legend. I remember seeing videos years ago of Tom tracking to a click and it was perfect. Is the ability to stay that locked into a click something you're still practicing and working on? First of all, thank you for that amazing compliment. Uh, (laughs) Not only is it very kind of you to say, but that is actually something I really do and did work on. I still work on that to this day. Click playing, I'm going to say what a lot of people say, is that you want to try to hear the click as a part of the music rather than as some antagonistic force only here to piss you off. Um, (laughs) The way I, I don't want to say try, because trying always made it seem like it was going to fail. That's some Yoda stuff right there, and I don't mean it to sound like Yoda, but... I noticed that trying less. Now, this is, a, this is a concept out of the Inner Game of Music book by Barry Green and Timothy Galway. Highly recommended. Um, the, the idea that of, you, of trying less. So I try to bury the click. There's that word try. It's kind of hard to even say this without using that word. But the attempt to bury the click to the point where you couldn't hear it anymore. Now, that presents a problem because... Once you can't hear the click, your mind starts to play tricks on you and, oh, is it still there? I don't know. You know, and then that's enough to like throw your attention and now all of a sudden you're not on the click anymore. So it, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance of paying attention to the click as though it were just another instrument in the band, but then ignoring it and just enough to not be so focused on it that it consumes every other part of your ability as a musician. You kind of have to pay attention to it and not pay attention to it at the same time. I'm not really answering this question very well, but that is the best I can think to describe it. Now it doesn't feel like I'm listening to the click as much as I am just, I'm feeling the pulse and it happens to be provided by the click, but I'm just feeling the pulse as though it were a bass player or some other instrument that I'm playing along with. Notice when you're playing with another instrumentalist, you're not focused on every single thing that they're playing with the, with the worry that you might not be with them, right? If you did, your performance would be stiff and would suffer. Sometimes we approach click playing like that, like it's more important than it really is. Not saying it's not uber important, but to over-focus, I think, on being exact 
actually causes the problem of not being exact. I think the more we are able to, to relax into a performance and just observe the click and observe whether or not we're on it and then casually make adjustments here and there um, is the best course of action. And yes, I still work on it a lot. Like it's <laughs> a major part of my focus every time I sit down to play, no, no matter what I'm playing. So, yeah, I mean, those skills are perishable. So, yes, yes, yeah. That's a great way to say that. Uh, and I notice if for some reason I let enough time go by without doing it, ooh, wow, that's, whew, that used to be easier. Guess I know what I'm doing for the next hour, you know? <laughs> exactly. So last question. This one's from Sean O'Shaughnessy. Um, Love that name. Looks like he's got two. Yeah, it's a great name. He's actually got two questions. First one is, when balancing all the business endeavors, did you find yourself having to delegate more or did you maintain a direct hands-on approach with every uh, job, gig, project, product? Okay. Um, first of all, let me say that my mom's maiden name is Shaughnessy. Not with the O, but Shaughnessy. So I, I, there's a definite, definite affinity for that name. Um, I did maintain hands-on with everything, not because I didn't want to delegate. I probably would have if I could have, but I was always primarily the only person doing the work, you know? So when I was work, operating a video production company, I would have interns and partners at various times, but I had the vision. And until you get, I think, big enough, and I never got quite big enough or successful enough to to hire people better than me, uh, which is what you're supposed to do, hire a bunch of people better than you and let them help you. <laughs> um, yes. I, I kind of had to carry the load. So, uh, and then in VO, it really is just me. Like, I don't want anyone else taking my job. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always, uh, it's always, yeah, I, I did not delegate. No, it just became more to navigate. It became more work, um, more billable hours though, uh, and more time spent, but, but, but I'm okay with that. So no, no, no delegation, but I'm still not stretched at the seams yet. <laughs> so you're really good at time management. <sighs> Either that, or I haven't figured out that I'm not. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and my clients are okay. Like uh, nobody's mad at me. Nobody's bitching. Hey, where's this VO file? You know, thankfully. So. All right. And this is his second question here. Um, as a human NPC, did you find yourself emulating what folks were programming and sequencing or kind of laying down patterns you thought appropriate? For example, playing the part how a drummer would traditionally play it versus matching the more finger drummer NPC style of playing beats? Definitely the, the, the latter. I did not approach, especially with Dallas Austin, who definitely finger tapped a lot of that stuff, or in some cases it was worse. Finger tapping uh, can be quantized. And I say worse, not in a bad way. I say worse just as a drummer. Sometimes instead of finger tapping, he would cobble together different samples that might, one sample might have a slight amount of swing to it, whereas another sample also incorporated in this one groove would be perfectly straight. And I would have to clone that as a drummer. I was not told to play my thing, my understanding on the, all those sessions was that I was to play what the sequence was playing. Um, and so a lot of times there would be 
very awkward grooves where every measure would involve a slight delay in one note, for example. Now, we work as drummers, we work our whole lives to not have that happen. We try to make everything consistent and, and, and perfect, right? If we're swinging, the whole body is supposed to swing in the same way. If we're playing straight, the whole body needs to play straight. Well, he would have these grooves where everything would be straight except the left hand would have a slight swing to it. Oh, how do I do that? And so you just try, you know? Um, so the answer there is no, I, I had to do what they programmed. And I got pretty good at it. Uh, occasionally, they would throw something at me that was just so difficult, I would just have to eliminate a limb or, or say, I'm not going to play that note. That one note, I'm not going to play. Why don't you let the sequence do that? I'm not going to nail that every single time. Let me play the rest of it, which I can nail. And then that one note will be by itself. I can think of a perfect example of that. I played for TLC on their 3D record, a song called Damaged. And there is a, there's a loop underneath what I'm playing. Let's see. I think it's the E of four. One, two, three, four E. I think it's that. There's a but there's a there's a note somewhere in the loop that happens just ahead of where it ought to be metronomically. And though I would sometimes nail that, I didn't nail it every time. And so I just made an executive decision. I didn't even tell them. I just made an executive decision. I'm not gonna do that because I don't want them having to worry about that flam happening every once in a while. Um, and so the last take, I just omitted that one note and everything else lined up great. And the track sounds good to me, but before then it didn't. So, um, yeah, I, I took those as educational, as, as a great exercise, um, and a paycheck <laughs> all at the same time. <laughs> great answer. Well, oh. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank Thanks. you for sharing so much of your history so candidly and oh, man. just being Thank here. Thank you for and, having me. My pleasure. I would love to have you back on. Um, and yeah, just thank you. No, we're going to definitely do that. That'll be great. I'd love to come see you set up. And I haven't seen you in too yeah, many years, so it'll yeah, be great. It'll a, be a great hang, man. We'll make a day yeah, of it. For sure, for sure. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.